Good morning, Riverbend, um, or afternoon, or whenever it is you're, you're here watching. Um, my name is Drew, and I'm on the elder team here at Riverbend. And today I have the pleasure of wrapping up our 10-week series through the book of Hebrews. And you know, as I've been sitting here uh, listening to the teaching through the book of Hebrews from Travis and Bethann and Ed and Jesse and Mike and Joe, you know, they've been doing this great job of showing us how Hebrews points to the past uh, to make um, light and, and bring meaning to um, and clarity to why Jesus came. And um, I love that about this book where it uses scripture to interpret scripture. Um, you know, it does this in a way that not only makes it more clear why Jesus came, but as, as you then go back and look at the things of old in the Old Testament, it brings a more full and clear picture of those things. And this has totally transformed the way I read my Bible personally, where now no matter where I am uh, reading in scripture, I look for the breadcrumbs that lead to Jesus. And um, our favorite children's Bible, and if you've uh, had your child dedicated here at Riverbend, you might be familiar with this one, uh, says it brilliantly right on its cover. It says that every story whispers his name. Um, and, you know, this, this idea that, you know, everything and all roads are leading to Jesus on the cross and Jesus in the empty grave. Um, and I, I also love, uh, I came across this image and I kind of know it kind of looks very abstract and a little trippy, but what's going on here is that at the bottom is every chapter in the Bible. Um, and there's an arc where one chapter in the Bible references another. And so you can see these long ones where the beginning is being referenced by the end and all these ones in between. And I just love what this shows us that, you know, God doesn't waste any of it. Um, and so, so far in this series, we've been talking about how Jesus is greater than anything else. You know, it's showing how Jesus is superior to the angels talked about. It's, he's superior and more glorious than Moses in the Old Testament that the rest found in him is better than the rest of the promised land of Israel. Um, and it talks about how Jesus is a greater high priest and how he offers a better covenant relationship with us and how Jesus' sacrifice is better than the sacrificial system. And, you know, so, so in, in light of all this looking back uh, that we see here in this picture, um, kind of just breaking up what Hebrews has been so far that we've looked at. And so the first part of, you know, our, all of our series up till now and the first part of chapter 10 that we talk about today has been this looking back. Uh, it brings this meaning and clarity to the things of old. Um, and then it pivots right in the middle of the chapter that I'm going to be talking about today, where, you know, in light of all of this meaning um, and clarity we have about who Jesus is and why he came, um, what are the, the covenant people of God, what is the church going to do about it? And so it's, it's kind of in that pivot that I'm going to zoom in today, and it'll start in verse 11. So if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 11, uh, you can also find it on the screen. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should uh, be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us that for after saying, 
This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, and this is that pivot I'm talking about, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another, one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word to us today. Um, my wife, Amanda, and I, uh, like many of you who uh, are watching from home, uh, we, you know, we haven't been coming to services in person since October or whenever that was uh, that we went inside. Um, you know, we've been joining from home. We've uh, been trying to do it at 1030 to try to keep that regular church rhythm for our family. We, we have uh, a 10-month-old uh, pandemic baby named Lydia and a very restless, almost three-year-old named Carson. And so church for us looks a lot like, you know, holding Carson by his ankles and swinging him in one of his upside-down adventures and you know, every three minutes jumping up and running to the oven or the stairs or the cat food or the toilet or whatever it is that Lydia is about to either climb on or fall off of or both. Um, and so, you know, it's a very different church environment than it was uh, just a year ago. And in this church envi- it's from this church environment that I, I come to you today to pe- preach from Hebrews 10. And as I'm preparing and reading this chapter, the, the part that cut me like a knife during this season of, of church for us was this one, um, starting verse 24, that, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So do, did you realize that just next week it'll be one year since you know, the world changes we know it and that church stopped meeting the way we were used to? And we, then we read this verse, it's not neglecting to meet together. And you know, I just think it's this great timing by God to, to you know, really um, challenge us uh, with this verse. Um, perhaps more than anything else during these last 12 months, I've been grieved by this, the damage that I've seen done by this neglecting to meet together. Um, because I don't know about you, but the way I've seen it um, and how I felt it in my own life, um, you know, at first we, we couldn't meet together in our large gatherings on Sunday. And, and then over time, we grew tired of the Zoom calls, the video calls, the texts, the meeting outdoors in the cold. And so we stopped connecting with each other much at all. And when we did that, we, we stopped thinking about and, and praying for and considering the needs of those in our community that God is forming here at Riverbend. And, you know, my heart breaks because not, not just here, but around the world, people are giving up on their local churches. The church is taking a much lower priority in their lives. Uh, people are less engaged with, you know, communal worship and, and engaging in scripture with anyone else in their life. Um, People are becoming increasingly hostile toward um, their own church family. And I'm not saying this to, to shame anybody. 
uh, because in truth, I'm, I'm grieved at how these, own, these things are taking hold in my own life as well. Um, and this isn't to say that Riverbend shouldn't have taken such and such protective measures or that um, anybody who hasn't been coming should have been coming or that anybody who has been coming shouldn't have been coming. Um, I know the staff at Riverbend and each and every one of you are, are making decisions to honor God, to honor his creation, and to honor the people that he, he loves and longs for. Um, there's no hard and fast answers. And, you know, as all the commercials say, we're, we're in unprecedented times. And, you know, I think we can all look forward to some more precedented times in the very near future, hopefully. Um, but, but I look at this situation we're all in um, and the trials that the church has been th- put through this past year and the opportunity of the enemy of the church, the devil, and how he's used that to seemingly weaken the bonds of the church community. And I wonder, um, perhaps now more than ever in my life, is there hope for the church? Um, and as we walk through Hebrews 10 this morning, I believe it's providing us uh, some, some guidelines and an answer here. Um, and it starts that the hope for the church, really we have to look back and see what is the hope of the church. And out of that hope of the church, uh, like I have here the, the waterfall kind of uh, analogy, uh, just to visualize it a little bit for myself. Uh, but out of that hope of the church, we get the beauty of the church. And out of that beauty of the church flows our hope for the church. And so those are the three points I think Hebrews 10 is, is making for us today. And um, first, focusing on the hope of the church, I wanted to go back to verse 11. And what it says there is that, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And now the imagery here is just, uh, poetic, and I think uh, Ed um, back in Hebrews four pointed ahead, us ahead to this verse as well, um, because this standing and striving is replaced very, you know, directly with this sitting and resting. You know, the work um, had no end in sight, but Jesus finished it. What seemed impossible, Jesus accomplished. Um, and it does this, you know, looking at the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And this system that's discussed here, you know, we, in our minds, might think of it as this barbaric and outdated, bloody tradition that we've obviously, in our culture, become far too sophisticated to really even consider. But, but one thing that, that I, you know, kind of struggle with with this, and, you know, I think we need to keep this in mind, it's this, this system was prescribed by God. You know, he asked his people very clearly, and if you've read Leviticus with a lot of detail, how to do this sacrificial system. It's, it's part of God being in relationship with his people. The covenant that he made with them involves terms that uh, his people see this visual reminder of what sin does to their relationship with him. It causes pain. It causes suffering, loss, sacrifice, and it was never fully done away with. It always had to be dealt with and addressed. Time after time, animal after animal, death after death. And while we don't have this sacrificial system here today, right? You know, Jesus has, and, and Joe was talking about in weeks past, that Jesus has made this obsolete uh, through his sacrifice once and for all. Um, but applying the same 
standing um, metaphor, I think a lot of us still are doing a, a fair amount of standing and striving to put things right. Right? We, we are sacrificing on the altars of work, of morality, of perfection. Uh, maybe if I just work hard enough, if I'm good enough, if I cut enough things out of my life, that I would be enough. But we, we find that it never works out that way. Sin clings so closely. Our own inadequacies creep in and we fall short of enough. And so, you know, I ask you today, consider what altar are you still standing at trying to prove that you're perfect? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we all have something. You know, for me, I, I see in my life an altar of performance where I forgo resting in that finished work of Jesus, that once and for all sacrifice he made to instead stand and strive to prove myself to others and to myself that I've done a good enough job. Um, but that's why the next sentence is, is so sweet. It's verse 14 where, uh, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this word sanctified, you know, it can seem like this kind of Christianese word that might not mean much, but, but really it can be thought of as, you know, being sanctified, being made perfect. And so when you think of it like that, the, this sentence gets very interesting, right? It's, he has perfected, past tense, those who are being perfected, you know, this ongoing idea. And so, you know, what, what's going on here? When, when you become a Christian, are you perfect? Kind of a, kind of a ambiguous answer of no, but. No, but there's the assurance that you will be through uh, the adoption into the family that God has made possible through the work of Jesus. And, uh, you know, right after this verse, uh, it goes into the new covenant again for like the fourth time in the last three chapters, which Joe, I'm not going to belabor the point because Joe's done a great job walking us through that. But I do want to mention it again because, you know, is again, quoting Jeremiah 31 and this idea of the new covenant um, is important to the author of Hebrews, and so it should be important to us. Um, and this, to just kind of summarize a lot of what Joe's talked about, um, you know, this, this covenant was this promise echoed throughout all of scripture of, I will be your God and you will be my people. Um, but now the question that we've been dealing with is how, how does that happen? Because, you know, for a perf- for a people to be in a perfect relationship with a perfect God, they have to be perfect people. But that's not the case. We are guilty. Um, and so God had to do something to make that work. And, and the old covenant required the sacrificial system, this temporary innocence that God has made possible through that method. But now we have um, a new covenant and nothing has changed, right? That's key to think about here. God hasn't changed in his desire to be in relationship with us. We haven't become fundamentally better, right? We are still sinners, but the terms of the covenant have changed. You know, he um, has done this through Jesus, this perfect and lasting innocence that we have as we're cloaked with Jesus' righteousness, making us perfect in God's eyes. And so our, our sin has been put on Jesus. It's been remembered no more. And it's no longer a grounds for severing our relationship with God. And this is the hope of the church. It is the hope of the whole world. Um, 
And it's out of this hope that the beauty of the church is unleashed. Um, you know, Hebrews continues on, and, and this is that pivot point that I, I talked about earlier, where the whole weight of the argument about Jesus being greater than blank, whatever it is that we've been talking about these last uh, 10 weeks, it brings forth a call to faith and to perseverance to the church. Um, in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So, so because of what we talked about, that Jesus has perfected, even while we're still in work in progress, uh, you know, we can confidently enter into God's presence. And what this does to a community of, of people you know, believing this is that it, it kills the competition that we have among one another. Uh, it obliterates any of the me versus us attitude. And uh, we see this through all these let us um, references that, that I've highlighted right here. Um, Ephesians 2 says it this way, is that you know, Jesus in, in his body has torn down the dividing walls of hostility, this hostility between political parties, races, social statuses, generations. You know, we are not striving against one another to prove that we are more worthy of approval than the person next to us. Um, but you know, as we gather around the life, the death, and the resurrection of the one who has perfected us and the one who lived the perfect life for us, you know, we are freed to truly and uniquely one, love one another, um, a way that's very different from the way the world loves. And, uh, you know, Jesus points to this in John 17. Um, you know, he, he points to the fact that the world will know that God sent Jesus and that Jesus is who he says he is, not by the miracles that he did or the rock-solid evidence of the resurrection or the supernatural acts of the Holy Spirit, but you know, the world will know that Jesus was God because, and it's highly right there, that they may all be one. You know, that's the proof. Um, the world will know that Jesus was God and he was here because of the unity that the church will attain. Um, and that's because the hope of the church unleashes the beauty of the church and the beauty of the church is evidence of the hope of the church. And I, I know for my wife, Amanda, um, you know, she, we, we had dated long distance in college and her primary group of friends and, and people with influence in her life, they were not believers. Um, she was fighting for faith on her own pretty much. And she'll tell you it was, it was very difficult and she had felt herself slipping away from it. Um, then, you know, later on in college, she visited me up in Boston. And, you know, while I had my own struggles, I, by the time she visited, I had a very uh, close group of friends in a Christian community um, crew. And shout out to our, our crew, uh, Riverbend people out there. I know, I know you're there. Um, but she came over, um, and we, we went to the, an apartment where a bunch of people were gathering. And, you know, to me, it was just a normal time where we were hanging out, right? There, a couple of guys over there were talking way too much and it was kind of annoying. And, you know, this guy was getting really excited about something that nobody else cared about. And, you know, just, you know, normal stuff, right? Normal group of friends. We get on each other's nerves, whatever. And so we left 
And Amanda, she saw that gathering um, as utterly convincing evidence about Jesus being who he was and that Christianity's claims were true. And, you know, because she saw that a community centered around this um, finished work of Jesus where it's killed the competition between people, it's different than anything that she had been experiencing. Um, The beauty of it reflected a stronger hope than the world had to offer her. And, and John Wesley, he's a, a church leader from the 19th century. He, he says it this way, that the Bible knows nothing of solitary Christianity. Remember what we just read, the let us draw near, let us hold fast to our hope. We do this together, and we're meant to, and God designed it that way. And as we go forward in, in Hebrews, um, it's more than just being side by side with each other, we're, you know, in worship of who God is, we're also meant to be face to face with each other. And, and that's verse 24, where it says, let us consider how to stir, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So, so part of the beauty of the church is that we love one another. We love one another enough not to let each other stagnate. Um, and not to let one another fall into the snares of sin or of inaction. There are two sides of the coin with this that are are right here in this short two verses. Um, There's the stir one another, stir up one another part, and then there's the encouraging one another. And this, this word stir up, it literally means to irritate. And I'm sure a lot of us can think of people in the church um, that we've met who might fill this role quite naturally, but that's not the kind of irritate that I'm talking about. This, this irritation is, is really more about confrontation, um, to confront one another in our sin and our inaction, um, where we're not living in light of the hope of Christ that is in us. And then there's the other part of encouraging one another daily. So this really points to the ability to support one another. Um, and we see here this balance of confrontation of, and support. It's this, you know, ongoing idea of truth and grace that we have as a mixture in our community. And it brings out the best, most Christ-like version of each other when we do this right. And so let me ask just a question. Do you have people in your life you can trust to confront you in your sin? And if you don't, you know, don't start just by blaming those who you're close to for not being there for you like this, because a lot of this is on, on you to invite people in. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City, and he's, uh, he loves this analogy of uh, Odysseus in Homer's Odyssey to make this point, where Odysseus needs to sail uh, through the area that has sirens there. And that sirens are these creatures that would sing this beautiful song that would drive men mad with desire, and they would steer their ships into the rocks, shipwrecking their whole crew and killing them. And, you know, Odysseus realizes that he's weak in this way. He would not make it through on his own. So what he does, he tells his crew to tie him down to the mast of the ship, to plug up their ears and to row them through. And, you know, it took Odysseus asking them to do this. If we, if we apply this to our own situation, we, you know, need to invite people in to, you know, where we're weak, 
whether it's tying us down or rowing us through, that we ask them to do that for us. So do you have people in your life that you can say, hey, I'm going on this business trip or, you know, I'm going to be on my own for a few days with no roommates. Like, can you reach out to me? Um, and if, if I don't read, or can I reach out to you? And if I, if you don't hear from me, can you check in on me and just see how I'm doing? Or, or maybe I'm having a really hard time controlling my anger, you know, toward, toward my spouse or to my kids or, or whatever it might be. Can you just ask me about my anger and how that's going every once in a while? You know, we, we, we do this because as the hymn goes, you know, we are prone to wander. Uh, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And, you know, we're, we're still being perfected, right? That idea where we're made perfect, but still being perfected, but we're not there yet. You know, we see that even the most outwardly faithful Christians fall to temptations and to sin. You know, it feels like it happens monthly. You read about someone new that you admire, you know, being in some scandal. And it's just, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking, but we need this accountability with one another. We need this confrontation. And when we lose that, you know, the snares that we can fall into are ready for us. Um, you know, we're meant to be one another's keeper here in our church community. Um, but but this, this community, it doesn't just confront one another all the time, right? There's the encouragement, um, oh, sorry, um, this encouragement side as well. And we do this because we don't have to compete with one another. And Romans 12 says it almost in this humorous way uh, where it says, you know, we love one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another in showing honor. And if you think about what this means, it's, it's like this inverted upside down form of competition, right? You're, you're outdoing one another, but the thing you're competing against at someone else is making other people look better, <laughs> right? It's so, you know, we're free to play this kind of game <laughs> where we aren't threatened by making others look good because we rejoice in it. Um, and so, so here I, w- I want to ask us, are you held back from encouraging somebody because you're competing against them? So a- as we consider these two things, this stirring up and encouraging one another, this, this confrontation and support, um, we need to realize that um, you know, this is, is part of about Oh, sorry, <clears throat> we need to realize that these, this is part about how God is making us perfect, making us more Christ-like. He's making the church together into what he calls his beautiful and radiant bride. And you know, even you know, right now, we might think of that beauty as stained or, or very faint um, in light of what's going on in, in the separation we have from one another in, in, in this season of life. Um, <clears throat> it does flow to hope for the church. Um, a few months ago, my, my son and I were stopping by the church uh, on a Sunday to drop some things off, and then we'd head back and do our normal church from home thing. Um, and I went into the building, and uh, the worship team was preparing, and you know, Robin was back there doing her slides, and sound check was happening, and it was just the normal church stuff. And you know, in this like 15 or 20 minute visit where I, I connected with a few people, uh, draw, watched the band rehearse a song or two with my son while sitting in one of these chairs, it had me realize that I had been taking church for granted. And I left there with this burning in my heart that this is, you know, something God made and he made it good. This get, gathering together around him, um, 
you know, forming this beautiful picture of heaven on earth where we are gathered together to remind one another and to collectively worship um, that God in the fact that we are uh, sinners saved by grace to be sons and daughters of the King. And, you know, as I remembered the, the promises of Jesus in, in Matthew 16, you know, he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. You know, death will not stop the hope of the church. Separation will not ultimately divide the church. Time away from one another will not drive us toward apathy. You know, Jesus has established his, his church, and nothing and nobody can take that away from him. He loved us enough to save us, and so he loves us enough to keep us. Um, and I, I wanted to leave us with this verse here to, to challenge us to cling to the hope for the church, however um, the beauty might be stained or might be faint. Um, because this hope of the church that's founded on the assurance and promises of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection causes us to, you know, together let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, uh, God, we come to you knowing that um, you know, we have, for one way or another, neglected to meet together. Even, if, even aside from the fact that we haven't been together physically, we've neglected to meet together in the way you've designed us to, to confront and support one another in a way that um, helps us along the process of being made perfect. And, and God, we know that we are prone to wander. Um, so so uh, through people in, in your church, Lord, bring us back. Um, bring us back to you. Um, guard us against the um, threats of apathy toward your church, uh, threats of apathy toward you. Um, because God, we know uh, the enemy wants that. Um, but your, your hold on us is strong. Um, and God, we, we ask that you would just continue to create a burning desire in us for your people. Um, and God, we, we know that uh, yeah, so, so often we, uh, we forget about considering the needs of, of our brothers and sisters um, and just help us to bring that to mind more often. Um, and Father, for those who aren't yet a part of your church, who are, who are listening in and thinking about this um, and considering these, these things of can, can I really be made right before you and considering this hope of the church that we've been talking about, um, help, help them to, to know that the invitation still stands, that the, the day is not yet here, right? As, as you say in Hebrews, um, you, you will welcome in to your family. Um, and so help, help those who are still standing, trying to be made perfect on their own, uh, realize that uh, you invite us to sit with you in the finished work of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. Um, Lord, we, we love you, we thank you, and we are praying all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.